Before we open up our scriptures and read therein, let us pray that God would illumine the text to our hearts and to our minds. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now if you have a copy of God's Word with you, Let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17. This is the inerrant, the infallible, the life-giving word of God. Revelation 17, the Holy Spirit writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, And I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not, uh, has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not and is, an eighth is an eighth, but it belonged to the seven, and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God 
has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. All right. So I am currently reading with my children uh, John Bunyan's The Holy War. It's one of his lesser-known works, but I think it is equally vivid and creative as The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, The story, if you've not read um, The Holy War, it's about um, about a, a country, and the country's name is Mansoul. And as you can guess, the, it's about the human soul. And the story that Bunyan is telling in there is how Satan first got in. How Satan corrupted Mansoul all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And the town of Mansoul has five gates by which you can enter. There is the eye gate, the ear gate the nose gate, the mouth gate, and the field gate. But these gates are heavily guarded. And so Satan, who in the story is called Diabolus, forms a plan that, uh, the, that he and his invisible army will march up to ear gate and begin to speak to the town of Mansoul. But guarding ear gate is one captain resistance who resists all that is false. He is actually the only man of war within Mansoul. So as Diabolus is speaking to the townspeople in Mansoul, one of Diabolus's uh, followers shoots Captain Resistance in the head, killing him. And then through a series of seductive speeches, Diabolus gets Mansoul to lift the gates and allow he and his army in. And once in Mansoul, Diabolus goes to the heart of the city where there was a castle built by Shaddai, who in the story is God. And he rearranges, he uh, redoes everything. And he begins to tell the people of Mansoul that the real enemy is actually God. And that they should be careful and fight against Shaddai and fight against Shaddai's army. And Satan tells the people of Mansoul to put on his armor. He said, Diabolus said, my helmet is the hope of doing well in the end, no matter how you live. My breastplate is made of iron. It is a hard heart. My sword is a tongue set on fire by hell. My shield is unbelief that questions all truth. And my prayerless spirit is one that refuses to cry for mercy. So he bids the the, the town folk to put on his armor. And it's, it's a fascinating allegory that Bunyan gives here, and it illustrates something in our text, and, I, and that is that Satan is a copycat. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see Satan the copycat. Satan takes the things of God, the idea of God, and he, he, he twists them, he rearranges them, he, he perverts them. For example, uh, God is... Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what does Satan do? He teams up with the beast and the false prophet and forms an unholy parody. 
God is building the city of New Jerusalem, whereas Satan is building the evil city of Babylon. God is saving sinners and bringing them into his holy bride, the church, whereas Satan is seducing sinners by a gross harlot. The scripture is replete with um, what some call the, the two ways. There, are, there is this good and bad. There is this God and Satan. There, there are two paths, two ways. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, a good tree and a bad tree. There is the straight path and the crooked path. There is the narrow gate and the broad gate. There is the voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. And in our text this morning, we're going to see this clash between two antithetical ways. We're going to see and feel, I think, the seductive pool of the sinful world, but also see the beauty of our King and of our Savior. So first, we will unpack the identity of this woman, the great harlot. Secondly, we will look to the mission of the harlot and finally speak of the victory over the harlot. So first, the identity of this woman. In the previous chapter in Revelation, chapter 16, verse 19, we read, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So interestingly, the seventh bowl of God's wrath in the previous chapter is speaking about the fall of Babylon. It's speaking about the Babylon's fall. And that here in in chapter 17, John is now giving us a symbolic picture of Babylon. So in chapter 16, he announces the destruction of it. Chapter 17, we're given a symbolic picture of what Babylon is like and what is going to happen to Babylon. Now, the name Babylon is kind of has a rich use, you could say, throughout the Bible. Actually, the first use of the word Babylon we see all the way back in Genesis 11. Uh, as sinful people try to build a tower to heaven, the Tower of Babel. And in Hebrew, that same word used for, for Babylon, it, uh, Babel means confusion. In Second Chronicles 36, we get a report of the, when the army of Babylon came and, and sieged Jerusalem, took precious items from the temple of God in, in Jerusalem, and took all of, the, all of those items and put them in pagan palaces, and then burned Jerusalem to the ground. And Daniel, chapter 4, verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar was gazing upon Babylon, the city, and said, is, 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 uh, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And we know what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. God made him like an animal to graze. He lost his mind. He went crazy. So the Bible speaks about an actual city of Babylon. There's an actual place, an actual city of Babylon. But then the Bible takes the name Babylon of this ungodly country that did horrible things throughout the history of the Bible and uses the title Babylon in a symbolic way to refer to the sinful world. 
So Babylon, symbolically speaking, is the sinful world. Babylon is the evil world. It is not creation in itself, but the rebellious world. Babylon is worldliness, you could say. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John speaks of the sinful world, saying, For everything in the world, the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Notice what this harlot also is wearing. I mean, in verse 4, she's wearing a lot of similar things, these jewels and whatnot, a lot of similar things to the bride of Christ in chapter 21 of Revelation. Again, a copycat. She's adorning herself with jewels that is supposed to be for the bride of Christ. And she's almost trying to deceive in a way. She's trying to be this copycat to take these things and maybe look as though she is the bride. But she is not in Christ. Verse 5, she is Babylon the great, the mother of all prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She's closely connected and she is empowered by Satan and the Antichrist. We see that in verse 3. One commentator, Scott Duvall, said Babylon rejects God through idolatry. Babylon promotes sexual immorality. Babylon uses people and nations to indulge her passions for economic prosperity and luxury. And Babylon abuses and murders those who follow Christ. And he rightly said, if you see elements of that in a society, you are rightly looking at Babylon. Babylon is everywhere. In fact, it's one reason I think, uh, you know, one of the ways I think that John helps us to see reality. You know, the, the, the symbols in Revelation that we read about throughout the book of, of Revelation, these symbols are not giving us like high definition pictures of actual events that are going to take place in, 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 in terms of what it's going to physically look like, but they are giving us impressions of how things actually are, what things are actually like. So our first point, I think, is bringing us to the question, do we see the world for how it really is? The harlot is showing us a great picture of the actual world. Now, that is not to say that all around us is pure evil. And that is not to uh, say, or to deny rather, the beauty and the goodness of God's creation. And it is not at all to deny the common grace of God that restrains evil from maxing out. No, we want to affirm all of those great things. The beauty and goodness of God's creation and God's common grace is restraining evil around us. Uh, Praise be his name. But John is telling us through vivid symbols of the nature of the sinful world. Do we see the world for how it really is? Or do we have blinders up? John shows us the true nature of this harlot Babylon by calling her a prostitute. He's telling us that she's seductive. She is alluring. She's seated on many waters. When you're seated on something that speaks about control, 
She has a measure of control. She's mother, he said. She directs all seductive activity all around the globe, inspiring it, um, producing it. She is the harlot. That is her identity. So to my second point, let us now discuss the mission of the great harlot. What is it that she is trying to do? Quite frankly, she's trying to do everything in her power to corrupt the church of Jesus Christ. Her methods can be violent. They can also be alluring. She can persecute with the sword, but she can also woo people by making something look pleasing to the eye. She has at her disposal a poisonous wine that makes a person drunk. And here again, there's a twisting, uh, a, a parody of sorts. In Psalm 104, speaks about the goodness of wine, that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of man. It was a gift, and we use it in the, in the Lord's Supper often. But here we see a twisted, a perverted, uh, poisonous wine that makes a person numb. You don't even want to resist when you experience this poisonous wine. You, you become blind, you become complacent, and to re- re- return to Bunyan, her wine lulls Captain Resistance to sleep. But the harlot's methods have also a bloody side as well. In verse 6, Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. We see the handiwork even of the harlot all the way back in the opening chapters of, of Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, uh, many are, uh, are f- familiar with. They are the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus is writing to. And many of these churches that Jesus is writing to were rebuked or at least warned because they were in danger of compromising. You know, during John's day, it was very difficult in many of these pagan cities. In a lot of the pagan cities, they would have a pagan temple. And the pagan temple kind of functioned like a uh, kind of a big pillar for that, for that town. Business was done there. You hung out there. You had parties there. It was kind of the centerpiece of the whole town. And so if you had a business, you would, you would be part of a trade guild, kind of like a union of sorts. And they met at the pagan temple. And they would sacrifice meat to a pagan god. And afterward, they would even indulge in, in cult prostitution and terrible um, immoralities. And you can imagine the Christians in these cities saying, well, I can't partake in that. I'm not going to sacrifice me to a, to a pagan god and, 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 and partake in, the, in the, uh, the temple stuff. I'm not going to partake of this. But if you're not a member of the trade guild, you might not have a strong business. If you don't partake in the temple rituals, you might not have a job. You might not be able to rub elbows and network and do the things that you need to do because you're withdrawing from the pagan society. So many Christians in these towns were faced with quite the opposition. In fact, one of the churches that Jesus writes to is in a very wealthy town, but they are dirt poor. They're probably dirt poor because they're being financially persecuted in that town so as you can imagine, there was a lot of uh, pull for the Christians of what are we going to do? And so many false teachers arose 
in the early church, and Jesus calls them out by name in the opening uh, uh, letters to these churches. Uh, One false teacher he calls Jezebel, another Balaam. There's these false teachers in these churches that are preaching compromise, and they're telling Christians, it's okay, go to the pagan temple, worship the pagan god. You know, perhaps they're, they're telling them things like, just think about Jesus while you're pinching the incense or something. And just compromise, because after all, you have to put food on the table. You have to eat. You have kids. And we, we, we should compromise. And in the seven letters, Jesus rebukes this false teaching of compromise, idolatry, and worldliness. And Jesus commands the churches, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Increasingly, I think even in our day, we we experience the wooing, you could say, of the great harlot as we power up our phones, as we turn on the television, as we go shopping. Everywhere we turn, the harlot is there. Is she not wooing us, telling us that Christ is not enough? Telling us that we would be happier, perhaps, if we abandoned Christ and chose a different life. Telling us that maybe we should follow the way of Demas. Demas, who abandoned Christ for the world. Maybe we should follow him. Like Christian in Vanity Fair, our eyes are often captivated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions. The great harlot in our day and in every day is is everywhere. She's like the forbidden woman in Proverbs chapter 7. Now in the street, now in the square, she lurks at every corner. She grabs him, kisses him. A great harlot on every screen, every phone, every tablet, every device wooing. Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't you be happier if you left Christ? Isn't, isn't Christ shackling you down? Isn't Christ not allowing you to pursue your passions? Wouldn't you be happier and freer by embracing the world? And sadly, so many are drunk with her toxic wine. Now, we love technology. We, technology has done so many great things with medicine. And we can even, even in the Christian world, we can send the gospel around the world with a click of a button. We have sermons and podcasts on our phones and books. And, and it's done so many great things. But also with that has come the harlot to intoxicate. Throughout recent decades, several people have sounded alarms about what, you know, all of the various changes. You know, we're, we're in an age in which we've never been as, as connected. Uh, we've never been in, a, in, a, in an age before where, where we could be interrupted by anybody around the world at any time. We could be interrupted by someone from Japan or someone from Korea or someone from anywhere. At any moment, we are reachable, we are in- interruptible, we are connected in ways that, that, is, that is interesting. Neil Postman wrote the book, Technopoly, The Surrender of Culture to Technology, where he kind of develops this, what, what is technology doing and how fast we're being shaped by it. And Nicholas Carr wrote the book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain. Jeremy Adams wrote Hollowed Out, unpacking how this might be affecting our kids. Now, the, 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 the plead is not to abandon technology or to kind of withdraw. Uh, it's not at all to say we shouldn't watch television or movies, but it's, it, it is a call to be mindful. It is a call to realize that the, the, the harlot is everywhere. Worldliness is everywhere. 
And the call to abandon Christ is all over the place. James K.A. Smith, while he certainly has some theological problems, he has encouraged Christians to be mindful as we go to the shopping mall, as we um, power up our phones or or do whatever. He says, be mindful of the secular liturgies. There are secular liturgies. We, we are being shaped. We're being told something. When we see a commercial, we're being told that we're not happy. But if we would look like that happy family, if I only had this thing, then I'd be happy. And we're being shaped even when we're not really thinking about it. And um, in one of James K.A. Smith's books, he says, he says, think about walking into a shopping mall. What is it telling you? How is it shaping your mind in terms of what you need the most or don't need? Again, not a call to avoid, but a call to be mindful. But even as the harlot is wooing us in our day and enticing us with consumerism and materialism and pragmatism, her tactics are not merely to woo and entice, but her um, tactics also carry a sword sometimes. Sadly, we've seen cancel culture in our day, people getting fired from jobs, persecuted, prosecuted, and marginalized, and so forth. Verse 6, the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Her tactics are to kill or to woo anything that she can. Now, this term martyr in verse 6 is interesting. When, when we hear the word martyr, we, we think about the most extreme case. We think about somebody dying because they are affirming Christ, and they're being killed, beheaded, put on fire because they believe in Christ. But in Revelation, the word martyr can also encompass some of the lesser things, the smaller things. It could encompass people who are, are suffering. It could, it could encompass somebody who's not just suffering physically, but suffering financially. Somebody being marginalized. Somebody being shunned. So the great harlot is Babylon, the sinful world system that is antithetical to Christ. And her mission to persecute the church, to woo us away like Demas, to abandon Christ for the world. She will use anything she can, threat of force, or, or woo us, and she wants to make us choose. Choose between Christ or our jobs. Choose between Christ or our well-being. Choose between Christ or even our very lives. But now let us con- consider my third point, victory over the great harlot. In verse 6, John wrote, When I saw her... I marveled greatly. When I saw her, he said, I marveled greatly. This woman who's wearing replicas, fake replicas of the New Jerusalem, this woman who is bombarding senses like Vanity Fair, this woman who is more pleasing to the eye than perhaps even the forbidden fruit, is hitting the apostle with all of her allurements. And the angel asked him, why do you marvel? What a significant and sobering statement here, I think. G.K. Beale said, if John could come close to being attracted to the woman and beast, how easy it must be for his readers to be seduced. 
If John can come close to marveling as he beholds the world system, as he beholds this Babylon the great, as he beholds this this harlot, if he can become close to marveling and being attracted to this thing, how easy it is for us. The rest of the chapter, John is helping us to see the world for how it really is so that we will not marvel, so that we will not succumb, and so that the captain resistance in us will not be lulled to sleep by her wine. So let us, as we close, let us consider four reasons why we should not marvel at the harlot. First, evil is ugly and nasty. Verse 7. The woman carried by a horrific beast. It's interesting, some of the imagery that John uses. John is using imagery to make us cringe, to make us see it as, as something beastly and ugly. There's ten heads, and, or, or ten, yeah, seven heads, ten horns, and showing us how, how evil, how ugly evil is. Friends, we, we must see that all that is against Christ is evil and ugly, even if it looks good, and feels good, and tastes good. If it is against Christ, it is evil, and evil is ugly. But is, is that not one of Satan's oldest tricks, coming to Eve in the garden and saying, well, isn't that fruit so beautiful? Isn't, that, isn't there a beauty apart from Christ? Take it, eat it. No, John encourages us, Christ is beauty, and all that is Christ is beauty. And all that is against Christ is evil, and evil is ugly. Secondly, we should not marvel because the harlot and the beast will be destroyed. And that's one of the big things, one of the big emphases, you could say, of this chapter. They will scream in the fires of hell, and you don't want to go with them. That's that's basically the message. Verse 14, the lamb will conquer Babylon and the beast. Verse 16, interestingly, our God, rather, will cause chaos within Satan's plan and will actually make the beast devour the harlot. Fascinating. At the beginning of the chapter, the harlot is riding the beast. And at the end of the chapter, God is causing confusion within that plan so that the beast turns against the harlot, devours her. It says at the end of the chapter, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. This can actually be a helpful tool as we think about fighting temptations. When we see things from God's perspective, when we are mindful of coming judgment, when we see that, that, that all that is not of Christ will be destroyed, it makes us like it less, does it not? And in the next chapter, chapter 18, there's an angel that comes and declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. And the, another angel called out in chapter 18 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high to heaven. She will be burned up with fire. So when we see the ending for her, we don't want anything to do with it. Thirdly, another way to keep us from marveling at the harlot is to stick close to the source. Stick close to God's word. Notice John had the opportunity of having an angel next to him who, as he began to marvel, said, why are, why are you marveling? 
But we too, do we not, have a heavenly word. We have the Bible. But how easy is it to get bogged down in busyness where we skip out on Bible and prayer? And it's been a day. Now it's been a week. Now it's been a month. Now it's been a couple months. And we've been detached from the source Because of busyness and bogged down by so many things. But friends, if we are to have our wits about us, as we behold the harlot who's wooing us, we we ought to stay close to the source, close to Scripture, close to prayer. And not only for us, but for our children as well. It's so great that you guys are starting a a Christian school. Um, Abraham Kuyper, in his book on education, he said, This is the secret. Keep your children in the company of Jesus and educate them under the shadow of his wings until they are ready. And when they are ready, send them out into the world among the wolves, but as sheep, as young people whose shield is the Lord. Fourthly, to keep from marveling, know who you are. Know who you are. You are not like the earth dwellers in chapter 8, or verse 8 rather. You are not those who do not have their names in the book of life. No, you are are like those in, in verse 14. Called, chosen, faithful. You have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have been effectually called by the Holy Spirit and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Christ has conquered. And if you are in Christ, united to Christ, then you conquer in Christ. All your sins are gone, and, and the, uh, the, the devil, the accuser, cannot accuse you of sins and say, yes, but you sinned. Yes, but you deserve hell. He cannot accuse you anymore because all of your sins have been nailed to the cross of Christ. The accuser has no legs to stand on because, as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, God looks at us as though we have never sinned nor been a sinner and as if we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. So friends, we should know who we are. We are in Christ and all of our sins are gone and we are filled with the Holy Spirit that we might walk in his ways and he forgives us when we fall because all of our sins have already been paid for on the cross of Christ. This chapter in Revelation is a sobering reminder of the nature of the sinful world that seduces and persecutes. But God does not want us to read this chapter and be scared or to have an Amish-like mentality where we escape and totally withdraw from everything. God does not want us to do that, but he wants us to be mindful, and he wants us to be careful. God wants to encourage his church that even as the world might look powerful, even as the enemy army might look great, God wants to encourage us that we will see the victory. 1 John 5, 4, for everything, for everyone rather, who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? God is so merciful to us, is he not? He's so merciful to us because there is not one person in this room who has not been ravaged by the harlot. 
There is not one person in this room who has totally escaped her clutches. There is not one person in this room whose captain resistance has been faithful in all things. But God is merciful. In Bunyan's holy war, when God, when Shaddai hears about Diabolus and how he's ravaging Mansoul and how Mansoul even let him in. When he hears about this, Shaddai sends his army to Mansoul and he says this. He says, I love them all. They shall all be dear to me. Tell them that I will come to them and let them know that I am merciful. Oh, Christian, we have been defiled by the harlot. We have let our guards down. We have sinned against Christ, but God is so merciful, canceling all of our sins, guiding us by his Holy Spirit. So, friends, let us be ever more mindful of the harlot's tricks, knowing that Christ has the victory. Amen.